0: Good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to Redemption Hill. Um, my name is Robert, one of the pastors here. Um, and I- I'll be honest, it is very hard to believe it's been two weeks since we've been here. Um, it's really strange. It felt really odd last week uh, to not gather here with you to, to worship. But uh, I pray that you used it wisely I pray that you used the time last Sunday to gather with friends, uh, to gather with neighbors, to to use the snow as a chance to slow down from the craziness of Christmas, and to recognize and look around you at those that God has put you and surrounded you with, and you took the time to welcome them into your home, maybe to go into their home, and just to celebrate uh, the Christmas season and the story of the birth of Christ with them. So uh, I pray that you had a chance to do that, and I pray and expect fully that God will use that time. And that God will use those opportunities, that God will use those conversations for His glory. Um, This week, we are actually going to finish the Advent series that we started three weeks before Christmas, leading up into Christmas, even though it's not actually Advent any longer. Uh, Advent is the season prior to Christmas that celebrates the longing and the anticipation of the birth of the Savior, and then Christmas celebrates the birth of Christ, the birth of the Messiah, and Savior into this world, and then we flow into what the church historically calls the 12 days of Christmas. That's actually a church season, the 12 days of Christmas, that then lead into the season of Epiphany, which then lead into the season of Lent. But we are technically in the the season of the 12 days of Christmas, but today we're actually going to finish our Advent series with that fourth song of the story in Luke's gospel. And it's actually very appropriate that we do it this week instead of last week. Because the fourth song of the story in Luke's gospel about the birth of Christ is the song of Simeon, which actually occurs after the very first Christmas. Simeon's song of celebration about the birth of Christ and the, and the announcement of the great salvation that we'll read about actually occurred after Jesus was born, a good bit after he was born. So it's wholly appropriate that we do it today after Christmas, though it was part of our Advent series. So it's actually good. The kind providence of God gave us a chance to slow down last week, to celebrate the people, to celebrate the story, and to actually get our sermons in appropriate order uh, to follow the pattern of the Bible so this morning we are going to finish that series by looking at that song and by looking at that story and I want you to do the same thing that we've had you do for the last three weeks during this series I I want you to sit there I I want you to open up your Bibles and I want you to listen to scripture I actually want you to listen to this story I want you to do more than just hear me as I read it. I want you to slow down and listen to the story. I want you to put yourself in the story. And I'm going to do the best that I can to help make this a reality for you because I actually believe that much of what God wants to show us through this story and through the scriptures is best caught when we stop and and listen. So I'm not going to pick it apart. I'm not going to come up with alliterations. I'm not going to come up with points and implications and applications. I'm going to pray that as we listen and slow down and put ourselves into scripture, that the Holy Spirit will do his work of making the implications alive to our hearts. So I want you to listen because you can do that. You know, you remember that, um, I was thinking about it this morning. Remember that movie, um, White Men Can't Jump? Remember that that movie? Remember that great scene in White Men Can't Jump when uh, Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson are riding in the car having the argument about whether or not white men can actually listen to Jimi Hendrix? Remember that? (laughs) Wesley Snipes said, white men can only hear Jimi Hendrix. They can't actually listen to him. They can only hear him. They can't listen. Well, we can actually listen To Scripture. We can actually listen to what God is going to say to us through Scripture because we have the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit has been sent to illuminate our hearts and to help us see the beauty of the face of Christ in the message of Scripture. So we're going to listen this morning. That's what I want from you, and I'm going to try to unpack it the best that I can to make it as alive for you as I can. So let's pray. Let's ask for his assistance, and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together Uh, to celebrate your story, to celebrate your story of redemption and restoration, to celebrate your great acts of mercy and forgiveness and your character that upholded your promise to your people to be our God and to be our Savior and to rescue us from our enemies of sin and Satan and death. And we ask that your Holy Spirit make the Scriptures alive to our hearts. Uh, May we be able to listen to your Scriptures. May your scriptures speak the truth of your word and of your great salvation to us this morning and may we be changed into the image and likeness of your son this morning. May we walk out of here transformed by you because of who you are and what you have done that we might go and live in the places that you have sent us and placed us that you would be glorified in those places and we would receive great joy by your transformation and salvation. So we ask this, Lord, in the name of your precious son, Jesus, for whom we gather and for whom this story finds its great central climax. Amen. As we get started, let me catch you back up to where we are so that as we get into this story, it will make sense. Ever since, we'll go back to the beginning, ever since the, the fall of man in the garden, the original intention for God's creation has been shattered. The original intention for God's creation has been twisted and it's been perverted. And you see, the rest of, of creation along with mankind was created by God to reflect God's glory. That as we did what we were created to do, and as we simply existed in sufficiency and being provided for by God in His grace and mercy, all that we are and all that we would do will reflect His character, will reflect His glory. And we were created by God and put in this place that He created for us to reflect His glory. But due to our sin, more often than not, we tend to find satisfaction or seek satisfaction or seek justification in ourselves. We seek to find out of God's gifts and out of God's creation what was only to come from him. And so the Old Testament story, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the Old Testament story is really the unfolding of God's grace and God's mercy and God's consistently keeping of his covenant promise to man to one day make right what our sin had made wrong. The one day that God would bring one who would come, who would defeat the enemies of Satan and sin and death, and who would bring God's redemption and restoration to his people, that all that our sin had shattered would be woven together again and be made right. And the Old Testament is partly God's story and God's picture of his unfolding commitment to his promise and to his covenant, and it's also the unfolding story of our continued rebellion of our continued dis- ingratitude towards God and our continued prideful search for satisfaction and sufficiency and identity anywhere other than God himself. And so the, un- the Old Testament story is this beautiful unfolding blend of God's covenant commitment and his justice to our ingratitude and unfaithfulness and pride. And the story begins to just unfold and you begin to build with this anticipation of how is God gonna do what he has promised? How is God going to f- to bring redemption and restoration to this place, to these people. How is this story actually gonna end? And, and throughout the entire Old Testament, God sent men and God sent women who, who spoke to his people of his promises and of his covenant, who, who urged his people back to repentance and back towards faith in God to turn away from the things that had so drawn their hearts away from God, the, the adulterers and the mistresses of their heart that kept them from finding true joy. In, in God, and, and he sent men and women like the prophets, like Isaiah, I was re- we'll, we'll read this, Isaiah 40, verse 1 says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, there, there's a time of comfort that's coming when the battles and the frustrations and the anxieties and the situations that were birthed due to their sin were going to come to an end, this is what God's people were longing for and looking for and what Advent tends to point to, in verse 10 he says, behold, the Lord The God of comfort will come. He will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense is before him, and like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and in his arms he will gather the lambs. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So God would send men who would proclaim this comfort, this restoration, this redemption, this coming of God to fulfill his promises to his people. And he would call, they would call the people back to commitment towards God, back, from, back to repentance towards God, away from the things that had drawn their heart. But for generations and for centuries and for ultimately 400 years after that last prophet spoke when there was no more prophecy, when there was no more speaking from God to his people, there was no comfort. There was no peace. And the anticipation and the longing and the hope and the desire for God to make right what had gone wrong only built into his people. Then, as we started the series when we looked at it, God broke back onto the scene and the silence was ended when God sent his angel Gabriel to speak to Mary to tell her that she would be the one. She would be the one who would give birth to the Savior. God's promise was finally coming to the place that the scriptures say all of history had been pregnant with. All of history, God had orchestrated to this place, to this woman, to this time that he would fulfill his promise to his people and she would give birth to the Savior. And we looked at her response, the great Magnificat, the song of Mary, and her response to this news from God. And that was the first week when we talked about Advent. And then we saw that God broke back onto the scene with Gabriel when he told Mary's cousin Elizabeth that she, who was way beyond barren years, who was way beyond the time to give birth, would give birth to another son who would be John the Baptist, who would lead the way before Jesus. And his dad, Zechariah, the old grumpy priest, sang in response to this news and to this birth of his son. And his song we looked at the second week, the Benedictus, was the great song of God's sovereign salvation, he sang of his son who would lead the way, but he sang of God's sovereignty in salvation, the horn of God's salvation, the strength of his arm that would come and save his people. And then God busted onto the scene again just a few verses later when the lowly shepherds who were tending their flocks in the field, what we looked at the last time we were together, as Jesus was, was birthed into this world in a, shepherd, in a, in a stall in, in Bethlehem, God broke onto the scene with these shepherds. And the angels told them what had happened. And then the heavenly host appeared to these angels and sang a great song of glory to God. They sing of God's glory and God's greatness and God's character in the acts of what he was doing. And they sing of the peace that was to come to all men because of what God has done in the Savior. And they sing of the peace that was to come through what Jesus, this baby that had been born in Bethlehem, would do for us. And so Mary and, and Joseph have, a, have had a pretty strange and, and pretty unique nine months. 14, 15-year-old girl pregnant by the Holy Spirit, going through all that she would go through due to that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Now given birth in a stable in Bethlehem, the future king who would rule over all of creation, who sits on his throne right now, the right hand of God, was first enthroned and sat in a feed stall. And he's told the stories of what they would have gone through and what they would have been through and what they would have struggled with. And after the angels announce this great birth to these shepherds, these shepherds come and they come to see this baby and they tell Mary and Joseph of all that they had heard and all that they had seen and they marvel over this baby and Mary and Joseph are reminded again, confirmed again, of the word of God that had come to them months before when she was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit of who this baby was. It was just confirmation. It was weird. It was strange. Don't miss that. It was strange all the way around. That's only going to get stranger this week. But it was confirmation of what God had told them and what God had promised them. And so we'll pick the story up there, from there, this week. And we're going to hear the fourth song of this story and the fourth scene of this story in a little-known saint named Simeon, one of my favorite people in the Bible. Very little is said of Simeon, but what is said of Simeon and what comes out of Simeon is unbelievably profound, one of my favorite men in all of Scripture. So we'll pick it up, Luke 2, verse 21, Mary and Joseph... We've gone through the nine months, they've had the baby in the stall, the shepherds have come, they've celebrated, they've sang, their heads have just had to be spinning about what is going on. We pick it up in verse 21. At the end of, of eight days, when he was circumcised, talking about Jesus, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So here's the first thing you've got to see. Now listen to the story. Just, we're going to try to make it real so you don't miss this. Listen to the stories. Eight days after birth. Jesus was just born eight days ago. Now think about everything. New mom, new dad, young, first child. She's getting nursing down. She's getting wrapping him down. She's getting sleeping down. They're just getting taking care of Jesus down. Eight days after having their first baby. According to the law of God, Genesis 17, I think it is, uh, commands that the, the, that the men of the people of God, the people of Israel, be circumcised as a recognition or a sign of the covenant that God has made with them and, and sets them apart as his people. So Mary and Joseph are just obeying what God had said and they take him to be circumcised and in that circumcision ceremony, they would actually give the name to the child and just in obedience to God by what he had said through the angel Gabriel and what had been confirmed through the witness of the shepherds, they gave him the name that God told them to give them. They gave him the name Jesus, which was just another way of saying Joshua, which is an unbelievably strong and profound name in the story of what God's doing. Remember Joshua and Caleb, the two of the spies that were sent to look out over the promised land to, to take scope of the promised land that God was sending his people to. All the spies came back and said, we can't do it. The people in the land are too great for us. We can't overcome them. But Joshua and Caleb said, no, that we can do this. They were the only two spies that were sent that had the faith to believe that God would uphold his promise. And Joshua, whose name was Heshua, which means God's salvation, his name was changed at that point to Joshua, which means the Lord is our salvation that God will come and he will defeat our enemies on our behalf. Our salvation comes from the Lord. And this is the name that was to be given to this baby, Jesus. The Lord is our salvation. And according to scripture, they take him to be circumcised that God had promised. And don't miss, we won't sit on this because it could be fun to sit on it, but don't miss the picture of what's happening when Jesus is being circumcised. Here he is, the, the final sacrifice, the great Messiah, the Savior to come. And and save his people from their sins. The one who would one day, 33 years down the road, be nailed upon a cross, his body broken, his blood shed for our sins. His body is pierced. Blood is spilled. The Lord is our salvation. Don't miss what's beginning to be shown to God's people through this initial obedience of his mom and dad to this act of circumcision. His body has been cut. His blood has been spilled. His screams are now filling the air. And they give him the name Jesus. The Lord is our salvation. Verse 22. And when the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And you must offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So now it's been about 40 days. We've got eight days he's circumcised. And 40 days later according to the law of the lord mary had to come back with mary and joseph had to take the baby back to the temple and she had to undergo a purification rite because she had to be purified after giving birth to this firstborn male child according to the law of the lord don't miss part of the irony here this is jesus's first entrance into the temple that one day he will make obsolete he will one day take down this is his first time he will go into this temple. He'll go back into it as a man as we read in the scriptures and tear it apart for the dishonoring that God's people had begun to do in the temple. But this is the first time that Jesus is coming into the temple. And don't miss the fact that his mom had to go and purify herself for her uncleanliness due to giving birth to him. But he one day will be the one who ultimately, ultimately offers himself to cleanse all of us from our sin and uncleanliness. Though she... Is, going through the rite of purification to be cleansed from the aspect of birth. He is the one who will go through that final sacrificial rite and offer himself as our final cleansing for our sin. Don't miss the irony of what's going on here. But they were going to the temple as according to the law, for Mary, one, to go through this rite of purification, but two, for them to offer him to the Lord, which is a normal practice of the people of God in Israel. But here's one thing that wasn't actually normal. You didn't actually have to go to the temple to dedicate your child to the Lord. You didn't actually have to make the trip to Jerusalem to dedicate that firstborn child as holy unto the Lord. That was just something that was expected of the people of God when they had their firstborn child they would set him apart for the Lord's service. But there was this thing that was that was in play about this time in the first century where there was a 5 shekel silver ransom that people could pay so that their son, their firstborn son did not have to do any priestly service. So the most obvious thing is Mary and Joseph were going to the temple for her to do her purification according to the, to the law but then they were also going to pay this five silver shekel price of ransom for Jesus not to have to do priestly service in the temple and that ransom was paid to the priests so that their work of being the priest for God's people could continue because they couldn't have jobs to take care of their family because they spent their time in the temple taking care of the people and doing the work of priests. And so people would pay a ransom so that their sons didn't become priests because they weren't of the tribe of Levi they would keep the priests in business because they couldn't go work for themselves so mary and joseph were there to pay the price they were there to purify mary from this process of giving birth but you did not have to go to the temple to do that they did that i think honestly because they knew the peculiar nature of the one whom which she gave birth to i think mary and joseph went above and beyond the call of god and the law of the lord by going to the temple to dedicate jesus to god to offer him up unto the lord because they knew that he was his she knew, and he knew, that this child was God's. In a peculiar way, kind of the way I think Hannah did in the Old Testament, they took him to the temple, and they dedicated him. They gave him to the Lord for the work that God had set before him, before the foundations of the earth. Mary and Joseph, I think, understood profoundly who this child was, what his role was to be. And they were very obedient, very submitted to the word of God and the scriptures of God, so don't miss the irony of what's, of what's happening now. That's part of the scene. Now we're going to get to our man Simeon. Look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now this is all the Bible is going to say about Simeon, but it says a lot. There's no more description of Simeon in the Bible. All we get is what he's going to say in just a minute when he sings the song that he sings that we're going to look at. This is all the Bible says about him, but look at what it says. It says Simeon was righteous. The first thing it says about Simeon is that he was a righteous man. and whenever the Bible talks about a man or a woman being righteous, it means they are in right standing before the eyes of God. The other way we'll talk about it in the New Testament, and Paul will particularly talks about it, is that we would be justified. So what we know about Simeon is that something has happened in his heart when the law of God has become so personal and real to him and he's become so aware of his sins and his necessity for God as his Savior that a transformation has occurred in his heart so that one day when Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead as the final sacrifice for our sins, his work is applied back to Simeon's faith in God for what he was doing. And at this point, Simeon was a man who in the eyes of God was righteous and justified though Jesus had yet to actually give his life as a ransom for our sin. God would take the sacrifice of Jesus and apply it backwards to those in the old days who by faith believed that God was their deliverer, that was their savior, that would hold his covenant to his people. And this is what we find out about Simeon. He was a man who was righteous before God. He was justified before the eyes of God. It also says that Simeon was a devout man. Now that speaks more to his concern For the law of the Lord. Righteousness speaks more to his standing before God. Being devout speaks more to his care about the life that God has called him to live, that the way that God's glory is lived out amongst his people. Old translations would actually translate this word cautious, that he was a man who was cautious for the way of the Lord. He was a man who was cautious about the law of the Lord. He was a man who was cautious about the way his life reflected the glory of God. He was righteous, he he was devout. It also says, you know, it doesn't say this, but here's what I'll say. I'll say he was Bible-saturated. The next thing that we see about Simeon is that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Why do I say that he was Bible-saturated? Because he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Because this was the great promise of the prophets in the Old Testament. This is what the longing and the hope was about. This is what that righteous remnant of God's people that was still there in that first century, though so many of God's people had left their faith and left their hope in God to deliver them, The righteous remnant had this hope that God would one day be the consolation for his people. Same thing Isaiah said in chapter 40, we read a little bit earlier. Comfort, oh comfort, my people. A time is coming when that suffering, when that struggle that was due to their sin would come to an end. When God would come and he would comfort his people and he would be like a shepherd, tending to his lambs, tending to the nursing ewes, Isaiah said. God would one day come and care for his people. Tender scenes of God loving and taking care of his people, protecting his people, guiding his people, feeding his people. This was the hope of the Old Testament. This was the hope of the prophets. This was the promise of the covenant of God, and this is what had captured Simeon's heart. He was a man who was intensely devoted to hoping for, longing for, and praying for the consolation of his people as God had promised in his word. He was a, a Bible, Scripture-saturated man. And the fourth thing that Luke says is that he was spirit-led. The fourth thing you see about Simeon is that he was, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I'll just say this because we don't have a whole lot of time for this. Make special note when you read the Gospel of Luke about how many times Luke talks about the Holy Spirit. Luke absolutely loves the Holy Spirit. So far in Luke, in the first two chapters up to where we are right now, Luke has dis- distinctly mentioned the Holy Spirit ten times. And in this one little thing about Simeon that we've read and that we're going to read in just a second, here's what he says. He says about Simeon that he would, the Holy Spirit was upon him, that the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah, and that the Holy Spirit moved Simeon to go to the temple at just the right moment that we'll see in just a minute. Simeon was a man who was Holy Spirit-led. Verse 26 said, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. How strange is that? Here's this man. There has been no prophet in the land for 400 years. Remember this. No prophet speaking to God's people. Just less than a a year ago, angels appeared to this teenager, this teenage girl way out in Nazareth saying that she was going to give birth to the Savior. Angels appeared to these lowly shepherds who were outcasts in society saying the Savior has been born in Bethlehem. But before that, there had been no prophet speaking to God's people. And here's this old man, this righteous, devout, loving the law of God, loving church old man who says God has spoken to him and he's not going to die until he sees the Savior. How many generations has Israel been waiting for the Savior? Every time a mother would give birth to a son, they would have to wonder for generations, is this the one? God had said one is going to come from the seed of Mary. One is going to come. He is going to crush the head of our enemy. Is, he, is, is mine the one? Is, my, is this the one? And for 400 years, no one has spoken authoritatively for God. But here's this old man who says, that, I can't die until I see the Savior. How strange is that? I mean, what must have people thought of him? I mean, he certainly didn't keep it to himself. I'm sure somewhere along the line, he told people, God told me I won't die until I see the Savior. I mean, thousands of years has Israel been waiting for the Savior. And this man says he isn't going to die until he sees him. Uh, I think the closest thing that you can think about right now, you've got to get an image in your head, I think the closest thing you can think about right now are those guys who stand out on the corner in the big cities with the cardboard placards and stand up with the megaphone yelling about the end of the world coming on a particular date. That guy who's got it all figured out that it's all going to happen at this time. That's about the closest thing that we've got to this guy, Simeon. This guy has been telling people that he is not going to die until he sees the Savior. And just make it human for you for a second. How would you live if you actually believed that you wouldn't die until you saw the Savior? How would you live? This guy goes go climbing mountains. I can't die. I mean, just... I mean, think about it. I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, there's not like some giant, you know, hammer I'm waiting to drop on you. Just think about it. You won't die until you see the Savior. That's Simeon. That, this is all we know of Simeon. He's a righteous, devout, Bible-saturated, spirit-led man who said God's spoken to him and he can't die until he sees the Savior. That's Simeon. And so here's the scene. Mary and Joseph, newborn baby, 40 days after he was born, Travel 100 miles from Nazareth, small little town, to the big city of Jerusalem. All the hustle and bustle of the big city. If you've ever been to New York, London, Paris, any of the big cities, imagine the first time you went. Remember how overwhelming it was? Remember how just the busyness and the size would take your breath away? These two are traveling to Jerusalem for the first time with their baby, making sure he's safe, making sure he's warm, making sure he's eating. All the things that you worry about with that firstborn, they make the 100 mile trip to Jerusalem they see the temple not as great as solomon's but grand nonetheless they see the temple and they're going to have to ascend the enormous steps to the temple the temple wasn't like a church that you find in the, somewhere around america the temple was enormous it was the center of life for god's people it was huge And they would come into this busy city and they would have to ascend these great steps into this temple where sacrifices were being made, where people were going through purification rituals, where other people, no doubt, were bringing their kids, paying this price, dedicating their kids. It was a busy, busy Place And these two young kids, first-time parents, have made this trip to Jerusalem. The place is busy. The place is crazy. They're overwhelmed. They're dealing with a baby. They ascend up into the temple, and and there's this other guy who's waiting for the consolation of Israel who knows God has promised him he's not going to die until he sees the Savior. He's righteous and devout and dedicated to the Scriptures. He's a Bible-loving guy, charismatic man, waiting to see the Savior so that he can die. And by God's great providence, the two of them, we don't know how, come into the temple together at just right time and here's what happens this is the action of the story verse 27 and he came talking about simeon in the spirit into the temple here's the spirit again and when the parents mary and joseph brought in the child jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law he simeon took him up in his arms and blessed god and said now wait okay stop there for a second don't miss this. I mean, you're seeing this, right? Are you, are you seeing it in your head? You got a movie going? Do you see the people? Mary and Joseph have gone into the temple. They've made this trip. It's busy. And here's Simeon, this old, righteous, devout man who's coming to the temple at the same time. And this is what he does. This, this I mean, I, I don't want to defame Simeon. I love him to death. But I got to get you a picture of this crazy, old Bible charismatic guy in the church, and these young kids come up into the church for the first time with this baby. And this old man comes up to this young couple and takes their baby out of their arms. I mean, don't, don't miss this. This old man comes up to this young couple, and Luke records that he took the baby from them. Luke did not say he asked if he could see the baby. Luke says he took the baby from them. Now, your first time moms, any moms with a baby. You come in here and some crazy old man comes up to you and takes your baby out of your arms. What are you going to do? I mean, what are you going to do, dads? I mean, I don't know what Joseph was doing. I had no clue. I, I was thinking about it with, this week when we were reading the story. I, I promise you, I mean, I'm not lying. I'm not even trying, trying just to be funny, but it's true. We have men here who carry guns. If you come in here and take someone's baby out of their arms, you'll, something will happen. <laughs> we have security for, for a reason. We love our kids. You might get tasered here. I'm just telling, I'm just telling you. If you. If you come up here and take somebody's baby out of their arms, something's gonna happen. But this is, what, this is what happens to Mary and Joseph. They're just coming to obey the Lord. Got this baby. And here comes this old man. And he snatches that baby out of their arms and he starts singing a song. He starts holding that baby in his arms and I imagine him spinning around. I mean, I just imagine Simeon taking the baby, almost like Lion King, you know, and holding him up in the air and spinning around and singing a song. I, I'm not sure actually, actually how it actually happened, but you've, you've got to catch the, the anticipation and you've got to catch the joy and you've got to catch the weight and the explosion of what was going on in Simeon's heart. You've got to catch the, the hope somehow or another, the Holy Spirit, I honestly think basically because of the way Luke has unpacked this and the way I believe God to work. Somehow the Holy Spirit spoke to Simeon's heart, and he knew. Luke doesn't record anything saying God told Simeon that's the baby. Somehow or another, the Holy Spirit spoke to Simeon's heart. And at that time, when they came into that place together, Simeon knew who that child was. And somehow or another, maybe for for manners' sake, he, he asked Mary and Joseph, has anybody told you this about your child? Do you mind if I you mind if I see him? And all of the anticipation, all of the hope, all of the longing, all of the deferred joy, all of the reality of God's faithfulness to his promise, all that had so consumed Simeon, all that had so become to be the thing that defined him as a righteous and devout man, would explode in this song of of joy. Let's let's read. Let's read his his song. Actually, yeah, let's read his song. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Stop there. Now I love that word, now. I've been waiting. I've been wanting. I've been hoping. I've been anticipating. Now. Now I can go. Now I can die in peace. One of my favorite things ever said about Simeon was by a guy named J.C. Ryle, and it's on your bulletin. It said, Simeon seems to have been a man for whom the world and all of its riches have lost its charm. Here is a man whose heart had become so saturated with the hope of God's faithfulness, with the hope of God's salvation, with the hope of God's redemption, with the promise of God to him that he will see this coming, see this faithfulness, He holds this baby in his hands. He holds this Messiah, this promised Savior in his hands, and nothing else was holding him to this place. He's a man for whom the world had lost its charm because his heart had become so saturated with God because his hope had become so rooted in God's salvation, because the riches that he treasured were the promises of God's salvation that would come in this Messiah. The world had lost its charm, and now he says, let me, I can go. I can go in peace according to your word. Peace, because there's no anxiety. There's nothing to cut himself away from here anymore, because nothing here holds the hope for him the presence of God does. Nothing here holds the hope for him and the satisfaction for him and the joy for him like seeing the faithfulness of God and the Savior and living for eternity in the presence of God does. Nothing else holds for him the treasure that salvation and the good news of the Savior does for Simeon. Let me go in peace. And I read this and I wonder how much money, how much energy, how much time, how much of our life will we spend trying to prolong this moment? trying to outrun death, trying to outrun the time for which it's been appointed for every single one of us to die, trying to do what is absolutely impossible because of our sin that we will all face death one day. What part of this world has so charmed us, has so caught our heart, has become so important to us that we treasure so greatly that we try to outrun the moment when we'll go to see Jesus face to face. What has captured our hearts so greatly and entwines us so deeply that we have a hard time saying with Paul to live is Christ and to die is, is great gain. I'll tell you, I, I want it to be said of me one day what they said of Simeon, that he was a man for whom the world and all of its riches have lost its charm. And to be that man, and I hope that for all of us, we've got to be more proficient at figuring out what captures our hearts. What charms our hearts. He was a man who could go in peace, who now, what he had wanted was to be with God. I mean, we've become so proficient at trying to define the work of God and the salvation of God and the redemption of God based on all the things that come to us because of Christ that we've missed the fact that the great reality and the great gift in the gospel is God himself. It took a man to write a book saying God is the gospel to remind the church that the great end of the gospel is the presence of God we don't come to God to get all of the things. As great as justification and sanctification and, and expiation and propitiation and all the great things we talked about in the last series on the gospel, the cleansing, the forgiveness, the adoption, the reconciliation, the justification, as great as they all are, they pale in comparison to God himself. And we have built the process of the church in this country or at least in this generation upon a program that tells people that salvation is found in the things that God brings and nobody is looking forward to being with God. My own heart doesn't look forward to being with God. Simeon was a man who was so saturated with the promise of God and the presence of God and the hope for being there with God that everything about the world had lost its charm and he wasn't centered on all of the things that might come through this promise. It was centered on being with God himself. And So I wonder what will it take for us? I mean, what will it take for you? What things still charm your heart? What things still tether you to this place? What things are going to cause you to spend money and time and energy for the next 10, 15, 20 years trying to outrun the inevitable, trying to outrun the time when you will get to see him face to face? trying to outrun the time that when all things in the presence of God have made right. What's trying, what's keeping you? What's what's tying you? What do you find that satisfaction in? For Simeon, his satisfaction, his heart had been so cultivated and so saturated in the scripture and in God and in the hope of God that Jesus, this baby, the sight of this child was enough. The promise of God was enough. What what other things do you need aside from the promise of God in Christ? What other things do you need aside from the hope of the presence of God for eternity? What other things do you need right now in this place other than the power of God by the Holy Spirit and dwelling in your heart? What other things do you need? What other things are charming your soul? So the first thing that, that we see in this song of Simeon is this unbelievably satisfied soul. Great song. I like Jeff Buckley's version better. Satisfied soul. And what in the world is your soul seeking satisfaction in? For Simeon, it was God. His song is a song of satisfaction in the person of God, in the character of God, and ultimately in the salvation of God that comes through this baby. The second thing you see in his song, other than this satisfied soul, is what we can call, for alliteration's sake, a scandalous salvation. His soul satisfied in God to the point where he wants to go in peace according to God's word because he gets to be with God when that happens. And then he sings the second verse of his song and about this scandalous salvation. He says, verse 31, you have prepared this salvation. Well, you can go back and read it because I'm going to read in context. For my eyes have now seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Here's the scandal. Israel has been waiting for this great Savior, this great Messiah who would come, who would fulfill his covenant promise to them to to be their God and to restore his kingdom and to be their king and for them to be his people, to make right what sin had gone wrong, to establish them as God's people in their land, ruling over in their mind the infidel Gentiles these infidels who have infiltrated their people for generations with their gods and breaking all of God's commandments, especially the first great commandment to have no other gods before him, all of the treachery, all of the sin, all of the debacle of the story of Israel in the Old Testament in their minds is due to the fact that people kept going to these Gentile nations and marrying these Gentile nations and these Gentile nations would bring their gods into Israel and the people of Israel began to worship these gods and it was the worship of these gods that brought God's justice upon the people and if they could just get rid of these gods and they could be right before God and so they had this image and this animosity and this hatred for the Gentile people not for a Gentile person but for a Gentile people because it was ultimately in their mind the Gentiles that made all everything wrong that was going on in their in their lives and in their people and so here's what Simeon has just said there's going to be a great salvation that is being prepared for all peoples and a light of this salvation is gonna be for the Gentiles. My salvation is not just going to be for my people Israel, the same thing God has been saying throughout the entire Bible, but his people just don't want to hear. My salvation is gonna to extend to all people, especially and even unto the worst of the Gentiles. That was horribly scandalous to Israel. That was horribly offensive to God's people. It's shocking. The animosity was so deep. The hatred was so deep. But Simeon was just, he was being Simeon. He was being a righteous, devout, Bible saturated, spirit led man of God. He was so saturated with God's promise, he knew what God had said. And this is what spills out. I mean, listen, listen, Isaiah 9. Isaiah said that he, talking about the Messiah, is going to go to the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness, Gentiles, they will see a great light. Isaiah said that this Messiah is gonna come and he is gonna be a light to these Gentile nations, a light to these people who live in darkness. Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and a light to the nations. This is a chat between God the Father and God the Son and God the Father is telling God the Son that in his life, death and resurrection ultimately what he was appointed to do he, his salvation would become a light to the nations to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison I am the Lord that is my name and my glory I give to no other God said. Isaiah was very clear God was very clear through the prophets this salvation that's coming through this baby through this Messiah it's for everybody but God's people didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to hear that. Think, Jonah. Go preach to those people. No, I hate those people. I don't want those people to get saved. Go preach to those people. No, I'm going to run away. I'll pick you up. I'll take you there. Preach to those people. Greatest revival in the Old Testament happens. And what happens at the end of the book of Jonah? Jonah leaves angry that God saved the Ninevites. He leaves angry that God actually extended his salvation to these heathen Gentile people. That is the animosity with which the people of Israel had towards the Gentiles. And here's what God said all along it's going to be for them too. My salvation is for those people we always say around here that you don't want to see here. You all have a particular people group, a particular type of person that you want to see the church grow, but you just don't want to see them here. I mean, if they showed up here, something odd would be going on with the church. Don't lie, you know you do. What he has said all along is that through his people, his light will be shown to those nations, to those people. His salvation is for all. Isaiah 49 I'm going to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you, my people, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 51, pay attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, O my nation, for a law will go forth for me, and I will set my justice, what? For a light to all the nations. Isaiah 52:10. the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. The great one, Isaiah 60, arise and shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the nations. For the Lord will rise upon you And his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This was God the Father speaking through Isaiah about God the Son, this baby, who has just been born, this baby, this ultimate prince of peace, this king, this warrior who would do battle, who is now in the arms of this man who has waited, who has longed, and he is holding not only the peace, but the prince of peace who brings all consolation to his people, the fulfillment of all of these promises of salvation that will be extended to all people. This is the scandalous salvation that Simeon's song sang about. Through Jesus, redemption would spread to all people and through God's people transformed by his grace through Christ's sacrifice, we would be the light to the nations. That through God's people now, we would live in such a way being satisfied in who he is and what he has done with it, Simeon was, that people would see a satisfaction and a joy in our lives reflecting God's glory, that they would be drawn to him through the way that we live, that our lives would proclaim this great salvation that Simeon busted into when he held this baby. That has been God's plan all along. That is the song that Simeon sings. There is peace and I can go because I am satisfied in God in his salvation, and now his people are a light. This salvation is to shine in the darkness, that we are to be a light unto the nations. Verse 33 said, his father father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. I mean, slow down and think about the last 40 days for them. Birth in a stable, shepherds showing up, talking about angels singing in the night, telling them about who he was making the long trip to Jerusalem, no doubt talking about Gabriel, no doubt talking about John the Baptist born to their cousin, no doubt talking about the shepherds, no doubt dealing with all that might come, and here's this man who scoops their baby out of their arms and starts singing songs about him being the Savior, him being the salvation, and now you know what, I can die. And that's gotta freak a couple kids out. But that's what's going on here. And with that great song, And what he's about to say to Mary and Joseph, Simeon's going to exit the pages of Scripture. That's all we're going to get from Simeon. The last little bit we'll see here in just a second, he says to his parents, and it's a blessing. And and I wrestle, and, and different commentators wrestle, on whether or not this, what Simeon's about to say is a blessing to his parents, or whether he blesses his parents, prays for his parents, and then delivers this news to them. But Simeon's about to bless Mary and Joseph, and here's what he's about to say. It's about Jesus. This baby, Jesus, is going to be a dividing line. He is going to be a point of demarcation. And based upon how people respond to him, some are going to rise and some are going to fall. Basically, Simeon looks at Mary and Joseph and says, your son, this baby, is going to determine the future of human destiny. That is a weighty thing to tell a young mom and dad who are still coming to terms with all that's going on, all that they're wrestling with, all that's happened to them in the last nine months, 12 months almost now. Listen to what he says. Simeon blessed them, verse 34, and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Here's how Simeon ends his great song, his great blessing, his great moment on the stage of redemptive history. He says a few things about Jesus to Mary and Joseph, a few things that wrap this whole thing up. He says, one, Jesus, at that point for the rest of his life and for the rest of history before his final return, he is going to be a point of division. Mankind, and in particular, what Simeon is talking about Israel, but mankind will be divided by this person, Jesus. Isaiah 8, I love it. I didn't know they were going to read it during the call to worship. Isaiah 8 said, He, Messiah, this is the foundation for what we read in 1 Peter, shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them, and then they will fall and be broken. They'll even be snared and caught. Later on, Paul would take that same prophecy of Isaiah that Simeon referenced in his blessing to Mary and Joseph, and he'll say in Romans 9 that they, his people Israel, have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall, but he who believes in him will not be put to shame. John, the gospel writer, the beloved of Jesus, would even say that Jesus came to his own, and his own what? Received him not from this moment, from this birth, from this time throughout history, until God finally consummates his plan of redemption, Jesus will be a dividing point between men. Jesus will divide the rest of humanity. People will be divided upon their understanding and their opposition or delight in who Jesus is. Jesus, Mary, your child, is going to divide men. He's going to divide his own people. Some are going to love him, some are going to hate him but he's going to be a point of division he's going to be a point of demarcation he's also going to be a point of opposition people won't just divide over jesus they won't just split a row down the middle and say i like jesus i don't like jesus i'm pro jesus i'm not pro jesus there will actually be opposition they will fight against him they will oppose him They will reject him. They will insult him. They will mock him. They will revile him. They will defile him. They will ultimately crucify him. He is going to be a point of opposition. Not only will he be divided, but he will be opposed. And Mary, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. He is not only your savior, he is your son. And he is going to cause great division amongst his people. And he is going to be opposed. It is not going to go well. For him it is not going to go easy for you you see in this division and opposition there's going to be great pain and affliction for you Mary his calling and his purpose on this earth the destiny for which he has come the plan of God to bring restoration and redemption to his people it's going to cause you pain Mary you're going to watch him be opposed you're going to watch him divide his own people and even for a time his own house His own family. And then one day we see in in John's story of the gospel and of the crucifixion, there's Mary at the bottom of the cross watching her son. And not just her son, but her savior, but not just her savior, her son. And you can only imagine the pain. It must have felt like a sword piercing through her heart as she watched her son opposed, reviled, beaten, scourged, carrying the cross, being nailed to it, and raised up for all people to see. As his body bled and his body was broken and as he would ultimately die, Mary, it's going to hurt. He is going to divide and he is going to be opposed and it's going to hurt as you watch this happen. But here's what's going to happen. In the division and in the opposition and in the pain that it's going to cause you and the pain that it's going to cause him, here's what's going to happen. The thoughts of men's hearts are going to be revealed. Here's the thing about Jesus. It was for his people in Israel from the time which he was born in his own household with his brothers and sisters as he grew with the people of God as he began to do the ministry that God had called him to do, ultimately to the time that he was crucified and, crucified and raised throughout church history and to this day, Jesus reveals the thoughts and beliefs of a man's heart. What you, how you respond, I should say, to the person of Jesus reveals what is in your heart. Because here's the reality. We won't talk about it a whole lot because it's really quite simple. The message of the gospel, the message of God's salvation of his people, the message of God's mercy and grace is a message that absolutely calls our pride and our hypocrisy to the carpet. We all desperately want to believe that we can make right what is wrong with our hearts. We all desperately wanna believe that we can make right what is wrong in the world around us. We desperately cling to this moralism and this hypocrisy that the person of Jesus and the message of the gospel absolutely calls on the carpet and exposes and none of us like to be exposed. None of us like for our pride, none of us like for our sin, none of us like for our self-sufficiency to be exposed. That's exactly what Jesus does. And in his opposition, in his division and in the pain of the crucifixion and in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to this day forward, what you think about Jesus and how you respond to the message of the gospel reveals what is in your heart. You will either fall on your face, as many in the scriptures do, in repentance towards him and mercy, seeking forgiveness from him and restoration to him, or you will go to hell in your sin and hypocrisy. And refusal to submit to him. Refusal to find grace and mercy in his message of forgiveness. Refusal to believe that you can't fix yourself. And you can't do enough to make God love you enough that he'll let you enter into his presence. It's an absolute admission and confession of insufficiency. It is a grace of insufficiency that comes. How you respond to the person of Jesus reveals who you are. This is the great song of Simeon. There is a satisfaction that can come to such a degree that our hearts can be so satisfied in who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus and the hope of his presence for all of eternity that we find the world, its riches and its charms as to no avail in comparison to the gospel, that we can be so satisfied in him that our hearts can long for him and that his salvation has come even to the worst of us, even to the least of us. Look who Luke has portrayed in this story, the Teenage virgin in the little town of Nazareth, the lowly outcast shepherds who were disgraced from society and disgraced from the religious culture of the time, to this strange but lovely man, Simeon, the lowest of the low, salvation has come. This great song of God's forgiveness and God's redemption is a light to all the people. And how you respond to it will reveal what your heart is actually hoping for what your heart is actually longing for and what the situation of your heart really is this is the work of jesus for all of eternity this is really the ultimate end to this story that these songs have been portraying this baby this child this messiah this savior man he's going to reveal what your heart is really made of he is going to reveal what your heart really hopes for let me say this i'm sure that i'm sure that they were expecting something different you know i'm sure that after all these generations of hope and anticipation for the messiah for the comforter for the savior for the king for the shepherd who would come their expectation was different i don't think they expected one who would actually divide people who would actually be opposed by his own people who would actually cause pain and one who would actually reveal their religious hypocrisy. I don't think that's what they expected, but that's what God had planned, and that's what happens with Jesus, and it's the same thing that we wrestle with today as we try to shape Jesus and change Jesus and mold Jesus into something more palatable to our religious sensibilities, as we try to make Jesus something that fits better with our sensibility of of moralism and is less revealing to our arrogance and self-righteousness and hypocrisy. That's not the gospel. That's not God's plan and God's story of redemption. Jesus, this baby who will grow to be this man, who will become our king, who will die and be our savior. He calls our hypocrisy and our self-righteousness what it is. And like some, we'll fall on our face and repent and we'll be raised with him in eternity. Or like others, we will putter on in our self-sufficiency and arrogance and pride and live in a Christless eternity. That's the reality of this story. And so you've got to ask yourself, what does your reaction to God's scandalous salvation, the message of the gospel, and the grace of God reveal about your heart? And you've got to answer that for yourself. What does the gospel and the grace of God reveal about your heart? Are you opposing God in some way? Are you opposing his grace? Are you opposing his mercy? Are you opposing his forgiveness some way? Have you marginalized Jesus somehow and and made your hope and made your faith about some kind of good deeds or, or, or moralism? Have you marginalized Jesus? Have you tried to shape him and make him something that he isn't so that you don't have to deal with the, the sin in your heart so that you don't have to deal with the exposure that comes from the gospel? Now, how does your heart's reaction to the gospel, what does it reveal about what's really going on in there? You've, you've got to answer that. But that's what happens with this story. That's what happens with this baby. He is one who scandalously comes to the lowly he is one who scatters the proud, Mary said. He is one that lays low the mighty and the haughty, and he is one that raises to new life the humble and the lowly of a state. He is one whose mercy and forgiveness extend beyond all reaches and who has come for all people. He is one whose grace has come to the least of these and who those who recognize their sinfulness and their need for his salvation and those who recognize that they cannot do for themselves what he has done for us, he comes to those who, who recognize their need for him. And so you're going to have to deal with what your heart, how your heart responds to that message. This is what this baby came to do. Make no mistake about it. He came to divide men. And he came to reveal the hearts of men. And he came to raise to new life those who recognize their need for him. And in his life and in his death, God executed justice upon the sin that kept us from him. That's what this baby did. That's what these songs sang this story of. And it's to this story, and it's to this good news of the story that we have to respond. That we have to respond. In repentance and faith, or in rejection and arrogance. And I can't make you do either. But we can pray. And so I'm going to pray for us. And then as is our, our custom here, for those of you that are new, we like to respond to God's word every week. And we do it a few ways. After I pray, we to take a few minutes to reflect, to pray, to confess. Some questions are on your bulletin that you can think through and they'll come up on the screen. But we respond to God by letting him deal with us. And letting Jesus deal with us and, and letting him deal with our hearts. And then we'll talk about it in a minute. We, we together stand and we go and we take communion, remembering his sacrifice on our behalf, his body broken and his blood poured, this baby who would grow to give himself as a ransom for our sins. And we celebrate in response to the, the scriptures by taking communion and by, by responding to the generosity of God in the gospel for those of us by giving of our, our tithes and our offerings. And then we sing, we celebrate. On the backside of the scriptures and of the good news, we sing songs of redemption and we sing songs of God's glory. So, this is the time when I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond. And I want you to deal with Jesus. I want you to let him deal with you. No manipulation, no music, no certain chords to tug on strings to be played. You're going to deal with Jesus because this is what happens when this baby is born. You can't run, you can't hide. You have to deal with him. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your, your, your willing submission to your Father's will and for laying aside the glories of heaven and coming and taking on the form of a man, taking on the form of this child raised by these two young kids, by living an obedient life before God that I was created to live, by finding God satisfying, all the days of your life by wrestling with every temptation that I wrestle with by no part of my life being foreign to you but for you wrestling with that and overcoming that temptation by your dependence upon God thank you for living the life that I was created to live and then ultimately dying to pay the price for my rebellious life the life I chose to live instead thank you for being obedient to the purpose and plan of your father and and laying your life down upon that cross for dying to pay the price for my sin and thank you, Father, for accepting that sacrifice on our behalf and raising Jesus to new life, conquering death. That we can find satisfaction in Him. That we can find satisfaction in You. That the, the way that our hearts and our souls were wired to find, find You is sufficient can be done. That by Your Spirit, our hearts can be made new. That we can have a grace of insufficiency that our own efforts can be seen for what they are as pale in comparison to what you have done, that we can fall on our face and say, we need you, I need you, I need you to rescue me, I need you to change my heart, I need you to forgive me, I want you, God. Thank you that we can come to you and do that, and you honor that, and you change us, and you make us new. And thank you that we can be satisfied in you. But we ask that just as we, your spirit opens up our minds and our hearts to, to hear to hear your word, to hear you and your word. You open up the eyes of our hearts to see your glory in Jesus. Like Simeon, to see your salvation in this baby, to not just see another three-month-old baby being dedicated to you, but to see your salvation in this baby. Lord, open up the eyes of our hearts to see your salvation and your glory in Jesus. Let the riches and the charms of this world fall away from our hearts. And let us see the riches of your salvation in the face of Christ by your spirit. We ask that, Lord. Lord, do your work in our hearts. Change us, make us new. And may you be glorified in all that we do and all that we say. And may we experience the great tangible joy that comes from your salvation. Amen.